Black Cats Run, Learn to Fly, Episode 3D. At the end of the last podcast, we asked the episode question. Um, we closed the episode by asking the question in a couple different ways. How do I even know if I'm recovered? I can tell you that today I woke up and I knew I wasn't recovered. Sometimes it's not always that obvious, but today was pretty obvious. On Sunday, I had one of those experiences with my youngest brother, um, the sort of like freak athlete, I guess, would be what you might say in a traditional sense. Uh, He's been around in the area for the holidays, and he wanted sometimes he likes to start exercise with me. And that's what I say is you just want me to go with you to the end of the driveway and then you disappear. And there was a point in time, uh, he's about four years younger than me, when I had kind of this age and experience advantage over him, which meant that we would go out and train and we might go with dad, you know, in a group of three. Um, and our other brother who's in between had sort of been, you know, also was a ran in college, but has sort of had more of an intermittent, intermittent on and off relationship with sport and whatnot. Seems to do a lot more lifting more consistently than anything else these days. But he would be out there sometimes is the point of that. But, you know, there was a time period where, you know, I could really take uh, my brother Camden to the woodshed. And those days are long gone. And so it's become this joke of, well, you just, you know, are having a hard time initiating your activity because every time I try to go, it either turns into this, I think there's sort of like a sadistic satisfaction and grinding me down into dust over the course of a run or a ride. And the running I gave up on quite a while ago after I pretty, after trying to train with him for a period of time, I developed like a massive problem with my leg and my glute where I was basically convinced that I was never going to be able to run again. But fortunately that was able to get cleaned up and cleared out. Um, But with the riding, you know, I've sort of tried to do that and I won't go basically with him uh, if it's just me and him, because either I can ride 25 miles an hour. I think he thinks that people want to then experience the joy of that kind of speed, which if it was joy for me to go that speed, believe me, I would, but it is not joy. It is pure agony, especially with somebody who doesn't seem to decelerate on the hills to any degree. Uh, so it's become this phenomenon of, you know, you ride with him for a mile sometimes and he's gone. Um, but he wanted to start the long run with me yesterday. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not super feeling super inspired to go out and start this right now because sometimes for before a long run and especially after having been so messed up in my respiratory system from being sick you kind of have the sense of man what if I get out there and I'm just like totally hosed and I'm just in this you know carnival of misery you know for however long it's going to take and So I started with him and we kind of ran up the driveway and I made it with him to the end of the driveway. And it's kind of a long downhill to this lake. And it's about a mile into the run. I'm running along and then we loop that I was doing. And I kind of thought that he was going to do the same loop. But I figured, well, at some point he'll sort of disappear. And he immediately got to the first hill, which is you know, basically shortly after that one mile mark, it starts going up. And the whole run, it meets our gold standard. It's about 100 feet per mile for the whole loop, 17 miles. And he's just, I got to go do my run now. I was like, okay, well, that's the last of him, you know, within this quarter mile hill, which is like pretty, the hills on this run are pretty nasty, especially the first five miles. It's almost like the hardest part of the run is just the first five miles because the hills are just constant. You're just up and down and up and down. It's like the teeth of a saw. And it feels like that in the legs, especially that early in the run. And he proceeded, though, to sort of go up the road, turn around, 
run the other way. And I thought, okay, I guess he's not doing the run. Who knows? He must not be feeling it or decide the loop's done. And then he starts cruising past me. And he did this probably four or five times. And after a while, he turned. He said, okay, I'm, I guess I'm just going to go do 15 miles. And so he went back. And I just did the loop. Uh, and it ended up going pretty good. But I, and I set the course record on the loop, which I was quite pleased with. And of course, I say that, you know, somewhat sarcastically because it's not like it's this uh, prestigious circuit in any way, shape, or form. I think only a couple of us have actually done the whole loop. But, you know, it was like 50 degrees out here on January 1st. So I'm running in just shorts and no shirt and and sort of cruising around this loop and not feeling that great on the hills, but still you know, managed to run faster than I've run over the course before. And I get back and I, you know, pull up my Strava and I see he's out there on the flyby because we overlap for enough of the activity. And I see he's also done 17 miles. And he managed to do within two feet of the exact same amount of climbing that I did for his 17-mile run, except that for him, you know, it was seven-minute pace. (laughs) And so... For me, you know, you think about that. You think about these differences between what we can do and how do you know what we should or shouldn't do. And, you know, how would you describe what he was trying to do versus what I was trying to do? I mean, I can tell you what I experienced, right? You know, was his run more productive because it was faster? Was our, were our runs the same because of the same amount of climbing? I mean, yeah, he did the same amount of climbing. He did the same amount of um, mileage, but he also, you know, spent almost 25 minutes less time running than I did. I mean, you know, transparency here, right? You don't need a Freedom of Information Act, I will disclose. You know, for me, it was about eight, 18 pace or so for the whole thing, you know, to his seven minutes a mile. And, you know, he's, again, you know, we've said this before, but his you know, 67 minutes for half marathon and probably could be closer to 65 minutes and and may well be over the next year. But when you think about that, I don't think either of us are going out there. And I mean, I know certainly I was and I'm almost 100% confident that he isn't either. We're not looking at a chart or consulting that or using that to try to make some sort of a determination. And in his way, he was going how he felt. And, you know, what made him feel good was, I guess, just accelerating past me as many times as he could, you know, much to my total demoralization. Um, And, you know, for me, you know, I settled into my rhythm and I had the opportunity to do the run by myself. So I was able to kind of go more into a kind of steady groove that I feel is more comfortable and enjoyable for me on the long run. You know, and I did that and then, you know, turned around in a couple hours, went out, rode the bike, gravel bike outside for about 90 minutes and did another gold standard ride, 100 feet per mile for about 90 minutes. I got back and then went into the barn and hooked up the weights and, you know, did my five sets of deadlifts at 245 and five sets of squats at 245. And then today, you could tell right away, okay, the recovery is not there. We're not, we're not feeling this right now. And I think it's interesting because sometimes there's this sense of momentum, which I think is something we'll have to talk more about in later episodes. But it's hard to tell if you're recovered. Sometimes you can tell that you're dead. And today it was very obvious. And then that begs the question of, well, did, did I overdo it or whatever? And, you know, but then there's this also sense of, man, I really got after it yesterday. I want to And my standard in the winter is like two hours. I can get two hours of activity a day between running and riding. I feel that's a pretty good baseline maintenance. I feel that's sort of trying to keep that general pressure on. And I went out to run and, you know, as I had basically already been able to tell, 
I was totally freaking smoked. And so it was just like devolved into absolute, um, you know, dog trotting like garbage. But at the same time, it's only garbage on from a Strava perspective. The reality is it was probably all I could do, you know, and I could have, you know, all I could do if I'm being reasonable. I could have gone out and done two hours. I probably could have if I, you know, had to, in a certain way kind of the weird psychological energy to be like, man, let's run, you know, seven miles and then let's get on the trainer for two hours and let's just get this going, right? We've got, you know, that sense of momentum and like you've lit the fuse. But, you know, you back off. And I think maybe because I had just been thinking about recovery a little bit more than maybe I do at other times, I was more mindful. But it's hard to say no, you know, to yourself. As much as there's sort of the dynamic of, man, I'd really like to just chill out and take it easy sometimes if, you, you know, you, if you're going before work and you're going after work, you know, or whatever your different schedule is, right? You're, we're scheduling this stuff around stuff. You know, I mean, even if you are a professional, you know, you still have other obligations, other commitments, things that you need to do or you want to do. A part of feeling good is not only doing exercise. You know, I think we see a lot of perspectives now where people are sort of approaching sport as this is me, this is who I am all the time. And I think media allows us to try to normalize that in ways that maybe we really don't want to be doing. And I think when we want to look at what we're doing, I think having those kinds of balances, and I feel that for me, it's easier to identify as being an athlete when you do other things, because then it's the sense of being an athlete is an opportunity to do something. But I think for some of us, we sort of can get in and be stuck in that space and is being you know, and it's, it's interesting because it's not like an on-off thing. I don't think it needs to be like that where we're like, oh, now I'm an athlete, now I'm not an athlete. It's not something I really think about. I recognize that I'm probably an athlete. And, you know, in a space like this podcast, when we talk about this stuff, we can say, yeah, like I, I'm doing this athletic thing that makes me an athlete. Um, but I don't feel the need to try to project that per se. But that also, you know, raises the question of, I may not feel that I'm projecting that, but maybe I'm projecting that anyway, right? What are the things that we detect or we respond to? I think some of us are very urgent in what we're trying to convey and project about what we're doing. And I think for some of us, maybe less so. We're not as concerned or preoccupied with trying to show uh, where we're at and what we're engaged with. But I think there's other ways that we can project it because I think it does become a part of who we are. And, you know, I did look at my watch out of curiosity. This isn't something I usually pay attention to, but it's telling me right now I have another 33 hours of recovery. And, you know, I think there are times when you can look at that data and say, well, maybe there's some validity to that. But if you take a look at um, the Instagram, so again, in, invite, encourage, welcome people to Follow on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. Love to have people join that space. Share your perspectives. Share your ideas, questions, topics you want to see covered. Um, all that stuff is appreciated. Make that a space for dialogue, right? For people who are curious about this stuff to engage with one another. Um, you know, send us a DM too anytime if you're curious or you know have sources or things that you want us to consider perspectives. To represent, but one of the things that you'll see on there is I posted some graphs today um, that are not based on real data, and it says it in the post. Okay, um, but it's an example of what we're talking about in terms of you know what is the utility of these models in terms of measuring and conveying the information that they claim to. And I had said that when you look at an intervention, a tech intervention like a whoop or a Garmin, something that maybe wants to tell you you're recovered, right? You know, how useful is that? And with the graphs, I gave an example of if you took a hypothetical, you know, so I guess what I'm sort of doing is suggesting, you know, what the study would be and then what kind of analysis there might be. And the graph sort of model, what would it look like if there was no kind of conclusion 
that supports that Whoop is really doing anything. And the purpose of that is to be thought-provoking, um, not to be definitive, and sort of be an exemplar of you know how we can use that kind of graphical representation and also show that we're not opposed to that kind of thinking here on the Black Cats Run podcast. So if you check that out, it gives sort of a visual to some of the stuff we were talking about. And we'll try to post probably more visuals more often on uh, the pod's Insta page for people who want to see um, some sort of different representations, different ways of looking at and thinking about what we're talking about on here on this space. So let's talk about the things that are supposed to solve this problem, right? Because I think there's that natural anxiety as an athlete, and sometimes it's obtuse and it's a really engaged feeling of anxiety where you need a coach, you need, you know, peers, you need both, you know, you need resources, people to engage with. And that's kind of one of the things we're trying to do in this pod is think about this stuff in the ways that it needs to be thought about instead of just giving people these dogmatic things, right? We talked about how after a race is sometimes the best opportunity for learning and and growing because that's when the experience and the sense of like, what was I able to create, was able to express in my athletic moment, I think is like the most poignant. And we want to engage with that and, you know, not walk away after you tell the athlete, well, you're going to run six minutes and you're going to run 90, 90, 90, 90. And then the athlete goes out and success or failure, the coach is nowhere to be seen, you know, and I think it's even more important to be engaged with the athlete when it doesn't go well. And, you know, for myself and my brother, right, we're existing outside of that space and of those formal definitions. You know, he's by certain models, and we'll get into the Daniel's numbers uh, from Daniel's running formula and other numbers as we as we get increasingly more specific with this stuff, but neither of us were running the prescribed pace by according to Daniel's formula. But the Daniel's formula doesn't take into something like that we're sort of calling in our, again, sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek way, but like the golden rule, how to free per mile. It's not accounting for that. Obviously, that's going to have effect on your pace. But how do you really say, is this equivalent to that? No, I don't think that um, the Strava, you know, pace adjustment, you know, for gradient, I don't think that that's useful, informative, or correct. I would encourage people to you know, probably not read into that too much for sure. But, you know, then there's the question of, you know, by moving outside of the prescribed paces, is that somehow going to, you know, get you out of the prescribed process of recovery? And I would probably say that the opposite is most likely true, that when we want to be recovering well, right, which what does that really mean, right? Recovering well really is just proxy for we want to be able to train in a productive manner. You know, as much as people say, well, it's all about recovery or, you know, improvement happens when you recover, I think that's slightly oversimplifying, maybe slightly misleading because improvements happen as the body adapts to a stress environment. And that's what training is. It's creating or inducing stress in the environment and that we need to be able to understand the nature of that environment if we want to be able to respond to, you know, in the way that we think and approach it, right, respond to that correctly in the way we anticipate recovery, right? But like one of the things, the reason why I know I'm dead today is because, and the reason why I went through that story is because there's other variables, right, that dictate and influence muscular fatigue. You know, the models aren't accounting for the variability of terrain, And you can do a lot with terrain and, you know, the models don't account for additional things like the lifting. And for me, you know, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm never going to weigh 143 pounds again and that's okay. And so I need to be applying a mentality of, well, how can I be the best athlete relative for my size? And we talked about a little bit and this will also be a recurring theme because it's a big, I think, uh, topic of consideration and for some people a real cause for concern and stress and self-doubt but we talked about in the power to weight that you know in the sport you know it's really through of cycling and running being power to weight sports it's really coming you know through strength and fitness that resistance right you know this in some sense the speed of death is 9.8 
meters per second. You know, it's gravity, right? We're constantly accelerating into the ground, and we have to overcome that, fight against that in order to perform these kinds of disciplines athletically. And that's not bad, you know, but, you know, you have to understand that, right? And so that work rate, you know, is also happening in a muscular state, right? Or I guess I'm misspeaking there, right? But, you know, the state of our work is also affecting our muscular state in terms of how we're going to feel. So it's easy to tell I'm not recovered right now because my legs are dead. And if I try to do anything beyond, you know, bare minimum shuffle jog, it's immediate, you know, you know, just exploding legs. You can just feel the failure. But, you know, tomorrow I might feel fine in a sense. But, you know, if I tried to go out and do work, I'm, you know, knowing myself, I know I'm not going to be recovered. And Wednesday I might not even be recover enough to do work. And so then you have this conundrum of, well, did I train too hard? And so this right then is once again, opening the door for what's the solution to this? Is there a holy grail? And I think that there isn't a holy grail per se. I think it's always going to be a process of learning and understanding ourselves and kind of developing our mindset or our mentality to be one where it's like, a pattern of observation, conjecture, and then how can we verify that? How can we look at our own personal data to reach conclusions? And how can we apply, you know, bigger picture ideas or understandings to empower us to reach more effective conclusions? You know, like paces we're supposed to hit and not hit, right? You know, I think it's just totally unrealistic. I saw a Strava post over the weekend from somebody who I would considered to you know be a very strong runner and is is currently running collegiately talking about you know failing yet another tempo and it's sort of this shaking my head moment because it's like athlete like this shouldn't be in a position where they're failing to do tempos and i don't think that points to a deficiency in the athlete it has to be pointing to a deficiency in whatever approach is being applied right and is the athlete being given the freedom to really think about how they feel or is the athlete being pushed in a sense you know again and we can be pushed or pressured into things that are negative for the best of intentions I think most coaches have good intentions but when we get fixated on the concept of well, what can this model tell us right you know that can start to take us off base you know and that holy grail concept you know let's think a little bit more about you know what that means and why that's you know really an appropriate metaphorical lens to use here when we're trying to understand these physiological systems because when we apply that lens I think it starts to be suggestive of sort of couching this stuff in a more appropriate reasoned way and not having unreasonable expectations of what we think realistically we can achieve out of applying these models so much of what happens in this sport is, I would say, kind of quixotic in that there's an inevitable collision with, you know, the basic entropic tendency of the universe that systems break down over time. And one of those systems is our fitness, you know, that we are trying to build up and maintain, right? And if we don't maintain that system, and the more complex the system is, the more sensitive it is to breaking down at a greater or faster rate. And, you know, that collision between this entropic, you know, I mean, really, to call it an entropic tendency is understatement. It's just fact of the universe that these things will decline over time. And we're engaging in a challenge against that. And that's that Quixotic quest, right? That we're, we're trying to ultimately do something that, you know, is defiant. You know, we're defying the fates you know, and in any scale of success, it, it can only last for a short period of time. And, you know, there's the saying, you know, the athlete dies twice. At some point, we're going to fall off whatever our standard is. Um, it's inevitable. But the hope is that, you know, we extend that, you know, really through almost all of our life. And we can do that by if we shift our mindset or we have additional perspectives on what we think about this stuff, that there might be a period of peak physical performance, we're doing our best, but if we have a good 
relationship with the sport and we understand the value that being an athlete has to us and that, you know, and I'm not saying that hedonistic thing of it doesn't matter what the outcome is, but that achieving performance is about like engaging with what you can do at any given time and getting the most out of yourself. And that's the adversity is ultimately you are the adversity, you know, for Don Quixote, you know, those were only windmills. Now he is the structure at the end of the day of that adversity that he faced. And there's, you know, that sort of tragic, you know, romanticism, I suppose, in a way to being an athlete, even today. Um, You know, we can also think in a sort of more historical and less literary context about the alchemical notion of the pursuit of a philosopher's stone as some sort of a master key. You know, again, the give me, give to me your secrets mindset. And obviously people like simple solutions. There seems to be a cognitive bias here to pick these kinds of things. And so I think, you know, even though we can say, you know, this is a holy grail concept, this idea that, well, there's this master key, you know, that we're going to, you know, successfully identify and then print and distribute to the masses. And it's just going to allow people to achieve, you know, is just on the one hand, something that you would think would be, you know, illogical to the point where people should be dismissive of it. But the possibility of it is so great. And then we can sort of enhance the belief and the promise of these physiological solutions to training because we can just sort of promote the notion of like, oh, okay, well, if it's not working for you, it's because you're not disciplined enough. It's because you lack the mental skill set needed, right? No, there's something in your brain that is buried away and you have to bring that out and unleash that. And I think that we're also looking at, you know, models that are engaging survivorship bias. You know, in, in World War II, uh, when the bombers are coming back from raids on, on Germany and, and Japan and other places where there's heavy air defenses, you know, uh, the, if you've ever read Catch-22, like, this was not a good scene um, if you were in the Air Force's um you know, bomber divisions because people were getting smoked like crazy. And, you know, so one of the issues is, well, what can we do to increase the survivability? And, you know, people would look at the planes and they would look at the patterns of, well, look at all these bullet holes, you know, oh my God, we need to cover these up. But the implication is actually that the planes can survive that damage that that's not the problem, right? The problem is the planes that didn't come back by inference are the planes that got shot in all the places that these planes didn't get shot. And that's the area that you need to look at. And that's sort of where this concept of survivorship bias comes from. The bias was to look at the survivors and, and study them and try to fix, you know, whatever the holes in their frame is instead of trying to reach inferences about the people who aren't successful. And I think that these physiological models, you know, thrive in an environment of survivorship bias. And that's just an extension, again, of what we've been talking about with like adrenal and discipline select-based selectivism sort of leading to these ideas, right? And, you know, this idea that you can like optimize training is basically taking what an act that people are engaging in with themselves like relative to themselves, right? Self-referencing, here I am, here's where I'm hoping to be. How can I assess and understand what I'm experiencing to make that progress? And then we're, you know, feeding out of industrial idea of the sciences, you know, a personal, excuse me, let me say that correctly. It becomes sort of apersonal, which is the opposite of a personal Um, engagement. It's apersonal. It's not really engaged in how the athlete feels. And again, we're not criticizing scientific inquiry as antisocial. We're just saying that that perspective is going to be limited. And, you know, the phrase studies show is a common reference. It leads into some rationalization of something and or some sort of maybe oftentimes dismissal um, of what somebody might be, you know, experiencing and want to articulate about their experience. But again, going back to the example of 
you know, the runner on Strava, collegiate runner, you know, you know, failing in their workouts, failing in their tempo runs, like people shouldn't be failing workouts unless a workout is sort of designed with this idea of I'm going to reach a point of failure. So if I go out and I do a 50K run, you know, and I haven't done anything like that in a while, the reality is I know that there's a degree of probability that I'm going to reach a point of failure. I mean, it's not designed to bring me to failure. It's just like if it's August and I'm running on these logging roads in Maine at 10 o'clock in the morning and it's 90 degrees outside, you know, and I only have half a liter of water, like I'm probably going to fail and be lying in streams, you know, and walking the last eight miles because that's just what happened. And, you know, in that context, I, I accept that and I'm not really concerned about that because I've changed my mindset. But when you're doing tempo workouts that maybe last four to six miles or something, or when you're doing, you know, repetition or interval training on the track, you know, it's not designed to, it shouldn't be designed to bring people to failure because that's not productive training. And these paces, right, shouldn't be doing that. But I think, you know, sometimes the failure begins immediately when we apply a pace or when we apply a wattage that you can tell basically right away that it doesn't work. And one of those, the insights that I feel has become more clear to me from looking at people's Strava is just the extent to which people are struggling all the time to go out and apply and engage with workouts. And it's this crazy disconnect because people talk about sport, like everybody's doing workouts all of the time and like that they're following these, you know, clear models of, of workouts and, you know, what is clear to me. And I think the fact that people feel the need to express, right, and describe that struggle in, in different ways on, on something like Strava, I think really shows how challenging it is to engage with that because people aren't sounding off about their six, eight, 10 or 12 mile runs. You know, there's just like, you know, really, and those are the runs where they're saying they felt good, right? But then when they start to do these workouts, it's like clearly this like, you know, it's like a task of Hercules, you know, I mean, the struggle is epic. And I think they're sort of like seizing on that sense of, well, you know, I got it down or I really struggled with this one. But I would say two thirds of the time, it's people saying that they failed it. And then if you start looking at and kind of get interested in following what they're doing, like these workout progressions usually just sort of disappear because they're unsustainable. And, you know, the reality is most people, I think, are doing this based off of some external program, by which I mean they're either using a template or they're working with a coach, um, you know, especially for these coaching services, which, I mean, not to, I don't want to, like, criticize the intentions of these coaches, but I want to question, like, where uh, sport is at as an institution. I think I can say we because I, you know, certainly am a coach and, and, I know people consider me to be a coach too. I'm not just saying that. But where are we as coaches if we're just deferring to these models and we're not actually asking the question of, okay, what's going to happen to the athlete if they can do that, if I assign this to them? But it just becomes the athlete needs to do it. And like, what's our utility? You know, we're just, we're just cogs in a machine. We're not really bringing any kind of unique intellectual power to that. And I personally as a coach, try to stay away from doing that, falling into that trap. You know, there is no magic pace. And I think it's, you know, you have lots of conversations, but that's in order to figure out what, what it should look like and then to reevaluate and reevaluate and reevaluate. But that's what good, good coaching is. And as an athlete, you know, we talked about in the last episode, the cognitive capacities, the ability to think and do stuff in a way that makes, you know, logical sense, Right. And then to be able to, once we have our logic, can we see rationally, can we verify that through our practice, right? We might set a pace and we might reach, you know, on the basis of, well, I ran this such and such race in such and such a time. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking I can progress from, you know, maybe you want to progress from 620 pace to 550 pace. Well, in a half marathon, well, you've got to, you know, go out and, you know, figure out, well, how fast am I really likely to progress? And then, you know, I said, well, I'm just going to go out and start running five, I'm going to run mile repeats at 550 pace. And if you go out and you do that and, you know, it's not working properly in the sense that 
you know, either you can't, you know, do it. Let's say you wanted to do six reps and you couldn't do six reps because you just, you know, I mean, that's the thing is it's not that it's pain and you can't handle the pain. That's your body saying, no, we're done. Right. And consciously this idea that we should be able to subdue that, like we don't have as much control over that as people want us to think we do. So we have to be able to look at that stuff from a different perspective. And you just say, well, if I really, why, what's the value of me accessing 550 pace? And then kind of do that differently. Maybe I just need to do 200 meter repeats at 550 pace. You know, that would be an alternative. But the physiological model is going to say, well, that's not productive because that's not the right, you know, duration. And, you know, to be fair, I think that some physiological models are do a better job with this concept of progression than others. But it's hard when you have something that's not designed around who you are as an athlete and how you experience the act of exercise with wattage in our in our cycling goals. If you're trying to progress your threshold, right, which is like definitely the big fixation and obsession, although I know that uh, Mariana Voss says she doesn't care about threshold because, you know, races, you know, are decided by efforts over threshold, which I think is both smart and then, you know, a little sort of flippant because, well, obviously, you know, she's reached a point of incredible aerobic capacity, you know, where she doesn't need to worry about threshold because it's for her, you know, it's not getting dropped because she doesn't have the aerobic capacity. It is because of efforts that are happening, you know, when everybody is working over, right, their aerobic state. But for a lot of us, you know, we're in a experience where there are some or more commonly many athletes who are totally um, just flooring us aerobically. So that aerobic issue becomes significant. And so in cycling, you know, if you want to improve your threshold to 400 watts, you know, let's pick an exciting number, 400 watts, you know, how do you want to engage with that? Is the best strategy to go out and be doing 20-minute intervals, you know, at your current threshold and then try to progress that? Is there value to doing... 20 second reps, you know, of 400 watts with 80 seconds easy in between. And I, I would say, yes, I would say you're much more likely to get to that point by taking that kind of an approach. And that would, I'd say, just be one little aspect of how I would go about that differently. And, and I say this too, not just based on a, you know, well, you know, let me just make up some bull crap, you know, off the top of my head, but I, based on the experiences, you know, I've had with, you know, athletes, um, you know, both coaching a team of athletes and coaching people individually, you know, those kinds of adjustments in training work better. And you can see some interesting stuff uh, with uh, Steven Seiler. If you ever check out his YouTube channel, it's got a lot of great content on there. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, short duration, high uh, repetition count intervals for uh, distance runners. So people are thinking about this kind of stuff, right? And, you know, will that eventually move into a new modality, right? Or is that just kind of like taking hit, right? Another physiological paradigm and just maybe sort of abridging that. And will that just sort of get sucked into that hit black hole, right? And I think that that's the point is it takes the nuance out of these things when we apply, we just sort of lump these things into models. And you know, I think you can retroactively look back, right, at this kind of stuff and sort of map out what happened and how do things progress. And I think there's an element of like periodization gone haywire there where you can create these incredibly elaborate models. And there's definitely a certain aesthetic to this kind of stuff where there's something sort of satisfying about color coding, using different shapes and lines to sort of try to map out and make sense of the training. But at a certain point, like, are you even really representing the training experience anymore? Or have you just created something totally new? You know, how accurate is that? Because although I do think you can and should retroactively look back and try to model and apply language to things to make sense of them, I mean, that's the study of history. And, you know, we learn a lot from history. And, you know, not just in a trivial pursuit sense, like we talked about, you know, the impact of understanding ideologies. And we can only really do that fully through historical perspective. But just because you can build that logic of language 
and the logic of periodization doesn't mean that you have the Holy Grail in your hands. I think it's just a more complicated, um, sort of aggregated version of individual athletes, you know, who had success and, and had sort of name recognition saying, well, I can write this book where I basically take my training approach and I sort of create this like scaled or scaffolded model for people of different abilities and I can package that and sell that. And those athletes probably believe that, you know, they had the best method and the best approach. I don't think that they're trying to con artist people, but that's also what's complicated about this. I don't think that, you know, our athletic space is full of people trying to take it, just take advantage and exploit people's desire to climb that fitness ladder, you know, and see what they can do, right? And be able to go out there, you know, and get in the thick of things and have that exhilarating experience of really being in the race. Um, but I think that that's also what makes it more complicated is people genuinely and reasonably believe what they're doing makes sense, you know? And so I think when we look at this stuff, we're kind of looking at these codfish level answers to training questions. You know, like when people say recovery, right, to go back to that concept we kind of sort of opened with, when people say recovery, like, there are codfish answers for that too, right? Recovery is a codfish answer for, oh, well, you're failing workouts. It's probably because you're not recovering correctly. It's like, and that's what I mean when we say like, it's not like meant to be ignorant or anything, but when you really look at it, it's like, what does that mean? Like, I don't really know at the end of the day, like how to recover per se. It's just kind of like happens, right? And you like try to recognize your fatigue and, you know, work within the limits of that fatigue. You know, if that means sleeping more, if that means eating more, if that means, you know, running practically 11-minute pace, you know, guilty as charged, you know, the day after, you know, doing uh, a level of activity that wouldn't suggest that you would be somebody who would need to run for 35 minutes at 11-minute pace, you know, that means doing that, you know, and, and the fatigue is the level of fatigue, right? But models of recovery, you know, these physiological models will prescribe a recovery effort. And it will be like, you know, sometimes less than blank watts, or it might be this particular pace. But and what that I think naturally makes people think is, oh, so I want to be as close to that as possible. You know, but sometimes recovery on your bike might be going out on your bike for an hour, and doing basically no pedaling, but just mentally, being able to be outside and be active and enjoy, you know, you know, being on your bicycle, if that's something you enjoy. Maybe for other people, it would be true that they should do nothing. I think ultimately we do want to get to the point where we're doing more activity and not less. But, right, horses for courses, I think we do see different people have different experiences. And maybe that's a reflection of where they are and the experience of sport they've had up to this point. Maybe that's something that can change over time. Um. But, like, obviously, if athletes are failing in training targets, right, either they didn't recover or the training is just, like, totally unreasonable. And I think it's hard to know if it's both. But if, you know, you have strong evidence based on other training the athlete has done, number one, based on actual indicators of physical performance ability in terms of things done in competition, number two, and number three, and most importantly, like the athlete's subjective feedback, which there's, I've never seen a spreadsheet posted in any locker room where it puts everybody's like top three words that they associated or everybody's, you know, one paragraph describing how the workout went. It's just here, there are times. And that's a part of the sort of like peacocking aspect of the sport is to be like, man, I went out there and the whole thing was a nightmare, but I did this and now I can sort of ride that gravy train and sort of imply that, you know, oh yeah, I was tough, but like I was the man the whole time. And, you know, a part of it is like to have fun and I don't think it's bad to sort of engage in that, you know, jocularity in a certain context, but I also think that it shouldn't prevent us from having like, you know, being able to also be like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, like, the reality is the whole thing was a grind and I don't even know. It just felt like super unproductive. And then you can have workouts and sessions where you feel like a million bucks. 
I felt really good yesterday, you know, doing my run. I, it was one of those things where it's like, you just feel like have such a great relationship with the ground as you're running. You're just eating pavement in the best possible way, you know, and it just feels like a strong connection. And, you know, other days it feels, it doesn't feel like that smooth or that natural, but everything just sort of is working in such an optimal state. And, you know, I think you kind of feed into that. And, you know, that can lead to these really big efforts. And then you have to be willing to say, okay, I don't need to pursue that momentum. I've got to accept, you know, what I'm trying to do. And I think when we think about this, like, identify why was the session programmed the way it was and if it doesn't work like what logic led it to be designed in that way because if you're doing something and it doesn't work then what you want to do is you need to say okay this logic this method of reasoning isn't working and I now know that isn't working because if it was working I would have created something that I can be successful because I think what you need to say to yourself is I'm inherently capable of doing this. I can overcome the challenge and the adversity of rigorous training. So if I'm failing in training, it's not my personal failure. This isn't a psychological issue, okay? The issue is that the workout is not designed correctly. So some sort of logic, thought process method is leading into that, and you have to make that adjustment. And I just think that we miss that adjustment so many times. One of the aspects of that is, why isn't the athlete empowered to make the choice to not do the session? You know, my brother and I both did the same distance, the same level of elevation, and, you know, minus my slightly greater duration and his greater, you could argue we basically, relative to our own ability levels, did the exact same session, but we went about it in two different ways. You know, he, you know, felt good by you know, blowing past me and asserting his, you know, superiority in terms of velocity, you know, and apart from me being like, you know, man, I wish I was faster right now. I don't really care, right? At the end of the day, it's not like detracting from my experience, you know, but it is, I think it's in our nature to be like, when we see people going faster, I mean, that's the whole point, right? And you're sort of like, damn, you know, am I ever going to get back to where I can do stuff like that? Or is that just totally out of reach? But then the reality is, is I'm running my 818 pace and I'm feeling really good and I'm feeling strong and I'm feeling fast, you know, and I think I'm having, you know, my own level of exhilaration, right? So like we're both exerting, you know, our approach uh, to do that stuff in the way that makes sense to us, right? We have that discretion and also the ability to stop doing things is important. And this idea that, well, once you've started, you can't stop isn't really bad, right? What we need to be evaluating is, is it productive? And I think the other thing is we fail at some point anyway. So why not be like, oh yeah, this isn't working and stop and feel good because we know we're accomplishing the goal. And then we can deviate into something else. So, you know what, I'm just going to cruise for 40 minutes or, you know what, forget these intervals on the bike. I'm just going to do 50 miles, you know, at whatever feels comfortable. And, you know, make that adjustment early versus grinding yourself into the workout where now you're so trashed, you can't do anything else. And use opportunity cost when we're thinking about this. You know, I was talking to some people on a run the other day about this and like people's fixation with specific kinds of work, absolutely necessary. So, you know, what's the opportunity cost, you know, of doing one session versus another session. So maybe that's doing 10 miles steady running or 60 miles steady riding on the bike. You know, how much less productive is uh, this that than the specific session that, you know, the paradigm has you attempting that you got maybe from a specific coach that you got off of some, you know, online training plan that you, you paid for or some example workout or you know, if you're subscribing to something like Training Peaks, it's just sort of in the schedule because somebody is just sort of like theoretically modeled, oh, wouldn't it be cool if the athlete could do this, this, and this because based on this physiological chart over here and based on these, you know, sort of historic um, evaluations of periodization, 
you know, things that work for people who are not this athlete, well, this is what needs to happen. Like, how much less beneficial is that? I mean, presumably we do specific workouts because they have some measure of benefit beyond just, you know, the continuous steady run or the continuous steady ride. But realistically, right, it's not either I do the workout or I accomplish nothing. You know, maybe the workout is worth 3% more, 4% more than, you know, the 10-mile the run. If you do six times a mile or if you do, you know, um, maybe, I don't know, six times eight minutes closer to aerobic threshold on the bike with a 90-second, you know, cruise in between, you know, versus the 60-mile ride or the 70-mile ride. But that also doesn't have to be the opportunity cost, right? You know, what if you're comparing that to doing a long ride or a long run or a really hilly run or a really hilly ride? Or if you're going to do a run and a ride and, you know, some other sort of, cro- you know, cross training or strength training, you know, three to four percent, is it now less than that? And, you know, that doesn't even mean, by the way, that if you miss the workout, you've now lost three percent. And then at, you know, if you keep doing that, you're going to end up three percent less capable because, a lot of people will say, well, every, you know, tenth of a percent matters and three to four percent, you know, is maybe the difference between first versus getting blown out the back of the Peloton um, in, a, in a serious, you know, road bike race. And I agree that three to four percent is a huge difference, but that's not the loss that you're looking at because not attempting that workout can ultimately lead to a training week um, or whatever that sort of cycle of training that you want to scale you want to use for that that could maybe then be just as productive um, as the model had anticipated um, just as productive as if you had done the workout or maybe it could overall be three to four percent more productive we'll resume with this context of how are we making decisions about what's most effective how do we follow our models in the next segment Thanks for checking out the pod today. Appreciate everybody listening, showing interest. Uh, feel free to check out our Instagram uh, page at Black Cats Run. Um, give a follow, send a comment, send a message. Let us know you're out there. We'll catch you next time.